Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Lulu La Duchesse Derriere, an indigenous burlesque performer from Quebec who is named number two in the world by the 21st Century Burlesque magazine. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Andrea Constand. Of the more than 60 women who publicly accused Bill Cosby of sexual assault, she is the only one to get a conviction. She joins me to talk about her pursuit of justice and healing and a new docu-series called The Case Against Cosby. First, though, let's meet a remarkable man who's planning on doing something, well, remarkable. Quebec ultra-marathon runner Yoann Rook is preparing for a nearly 8,000-kilometer run from the most southern part of the United States to Quebec's Gaspé Peninsula. He took time away from his training to chat with me via Zoom. Have I interrupted uh, some training or anything like that? Because I imagine you must be training uh, constantly to get ready for this run. <laughs> yeah, that's quite right. I'm training every day because it's uh, first a way of life and then a way of uh, traveling long distances on foot. Now, you must have been running for many years. This You're 49 years old, it says in the article that I have mm -hmm. in front of you. When did you start running? I started running, I think it was 17 or 18 years ago. I should check my math, but uh, I started running in 2005 right. and stopped running in 2005 and started again in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a love at first sight, but I, I started again and now it's, uh, it's okay. And why did you start? Uh, I know a lot of people do it uh, for health. Some do it for mental health. They say that it really clears the head to get out there and, and run and because you're just so focused on the, the physical aspect of it I started running because both my parents are uh, sports teacher so mm. I knew I, I had to do something so it took me 30 years to understand what they were saying <laughs> so I think I started I was 32 so I started running because it was a really simple sport so you need absolutely nothing so mm -hmm. basically shoes and a pair of shorts and that's it so and uh, I started because I knew I had to do something and I discovered that I loved it uh, so it took a while but after a while so I just dis I discovered that okay Okay, that's really my thing. It's really simple. And I love it. And you're tr it's really uh, true that uh, it helps for physical health, of course, and mental health. Mm -hmm. So that's something I discovered that whenever I was running, everything seemed uh, better after that. So yes. I just uh, continued doing this because I, I felt good. Yeah. And, th and that's what it is, I guess. That's why you loved it. Is it just you finally found the, the form of exercise that was perfect for you? Exactly. So it suited me. So it doesn't suit everyone. But for me, it was really simple and really perfect. So I, I didn't see any reason not to do it. And the best thing is that I, whenever I never, uh, it's not that I want to run every day, but whenever I go for, uh, for a run, even if I don't really feel like it, I never regretted mm. any run that I have done. So uh, I'm doing it, uh, whatever the conditions. And how do you go? from how do you make the leap from running around the neighborhood maybe you know running uh, you know a, a few miles a day to make yourself feel better focus the mind a little bit uh, to planning a run that will be 8000 kilometers you plan on running 52 kilometers a day uh, in order to finish yes. the run in 5 months uh, that is a that's a big leap how do you go from exercise to this extreme sport yes it's a long 
sorry, obviously, but uh, <laughs> in short, uh, when you're running, at first you don't know what you're capable of. And so uh, my first one was two kilometers long and it was too long. So I really felt uh, awful after this one. And uh, then I kept doing it. And just after a few weeks, I was able to run five kilometers. And then, then a few weeks later, it was 10 kilometers. And a year and a half later, I think I, I registered for my first marathon. So you really go from two kilometers to 42 for some hmm. people, not everyone, yeah. uh, quite fast. So, and then you ask yourself, so, okay, uh, wh where is my limit? And then instead of just physical health and mental health, you start wondering how, how far can I go? So I tested again and again and again. So <laughs> marathon, ultra marathon and ultra right. marathon is anything longer than 42. So right. there is no upper limit. So I tried 80 kilometers and then 160 kilometers. And that was not my limit. And so I go further. So 250, I think it was in 2015. And then in 2020, during the pandemic, I tried running for two weeks uh, every day. So I started in Percé, uh, the tip yes. of the Gaspésie Peninsula, and ran for more than a thousand kilometers. And that was still not my limit. So I decided to try and go further. You learned something, though, on that last 250-kilometer-plus run that you did, and that's that you mm -hmm. didn't eat enough. So I would have yes. thought, I mean, eat your food is fuel on a trip like this. So how do you plan on uh, eating enough, and it must be thousands of calories a day, in order to give you the energy to complete this run? Yes, yes, that would be the main challenge and i'm not sure yet because the body will adapt but the adaptation will come mm -hmm. after a few weeks so there is no way to train for this because i have to do it and adapt and uh, to see uh, how i can continue you're listening to ultra marathoner Johan rook on the richard kraus show i think i will have to eat between six thousand and eight thousand calories a day which is quite a lot yes and, it is uh, that's a lot of mcdonald's I, <laughs> yes, that's quite a few. And uh, I would have to, because I would be running in the United States mostly, and I don't want to carry all uh, any special food because it would be insane to carry uh, right. my own food for five months. So I would have to find whatever I can find in the US. Right. So, so that would be hamburgers, of course. It would be all you can eat restaurants. It would be uh, one kilogram of Nutella, whatever I can find. So, really high calorie, a lot of sugar, a lot of fat. And I would have to modify whatever goes wrong in the way. So, and it would happen a lot. But I have, I have a lot of time in front of me, yes. so five months to modify whatever isn't going right. And you don't gain an ounce. Right, an ounce of weight, even though you're drinking Nutella or eating Nutella and all that. If you don't gain an ounce, right? No, I. Sh the goal is to. I don't want to lose weight. I don't want to gain weight. Gaining weight is probably not even a, a risk. Yeah. But I don't want to lose weight either because if I lose weight uh, when I run when I ran for two weeks, so I lost weight, which mm. was kind of okay because after two weeks it didn't get uh, dangerous but if i lose a lot of weight during the first two weeks out of five months that i will get into trouble very fast so if i don't uh, if i don't get into an equilibri equilibrium really fast right. then i will have to adjust maybe stop eat a lot and start again right so i'll slow down maybe so i, I would have to see what goes uh, what goes on and modify whatever is happening but i wanted to ask you about the toughest stretch of this you think it's probably going to be florida 
that because of the heat, the humidity, the swamps, the mm-hmm. alligators. So yes, <laughs> so you just always have to be uh, on the lookout, I guess. Yes, the whatever I will find. But Florida, I've never been there, so mm-hmm. everything would be new, and uh, I know how to handle the forest and uh, whatever is in the north of the continent. Yeah. So uh, Quebec and Vermont and even Virginia, but Florida, I know nothing about it. So there would be bugs, there would be alligators, there would be, I think, uh, Florida panthers. So I'm not sure I want to know about them, that's but right. I hope I won't discover anything about them. But that's the kind of things that worry me much, uh, quite a lot. <laughs> Well, so, uh, we'll see. I'll be thinking about you as you're running through Florida on this 8,000-kilometer run. Johan, thank you so much for this. Thank you. What a pleasure you. to you're speak welcome. to you. That was ultra-marathoner Johan Roke on The Richard Krause Show. Now let's meet Laura Dern. The Oscar winner joined me to talk about her latest film, The Sun, which is in theaters right now. In it, she plays Kate, ex-wife of the Hugh Jackman character and the mother of a young man experiencing extreme depression. Laura, let's talk about uh, Kate because she's really vulnerable in this situation, in in the situation with her son, uh, with her ex-husband, played by Hugh Grant. He is, or Hugh Grant, not Hugh Jackman, and he is trying to find rational explanations about why things are happening. But you didn't, I didn't feel. Like, you were sort of open to the situation in a way that was really interesting. And then I found this quote from you where you say, a vulnerable woman is the greatest superpower. What do you mean by that? It was interesting because, you know, we've just, we've been talking about the film as we've been exploring it and discovering it since the moment, as actors, we read the gift of this screenplay. Um, But a journalist, as we're just talking about it, said to me, you usually play strong characters, very strong women, and now you're playing this very vulnerable woman. You know, what was that like Mm -hmm. since it's so different? And, and that's when I said that because to me, the willingness to be vulnerable, oh, I mean, it honestly makes me want to cry because that restaurant scene means so much to me because it's just the most beautifully written scene I've ever read. And, and what is more powerful than a woman who could look in the eyes of a man that's the story of lost love and of him choosing someone else and going on to live a new life that she would let him know how much she had loved him, which in a way is such a gift to him and also a longing to heal and reconnect so that they can parent this child together. But that's such a superpower. You know, most women would need to stay in maybe the blame or the shame of a heartbreak, but first and only she is a mother. And as a mother, she will be in whatever truth she needs to care for her child, including facing heartbreak and letting someone know she was loved to kind of dissipate the hurt or his guilt, because it's his guilt that makes him perhaps say that, you know, it'd be like this to her. Mm -hmm. So in a way, she's giving him the gift of letting go of his guilt toward her so they can align. I'm just so moved by her. I mean, it's, it's his, it's his gift that, that I got to uh, receive and, and discover and explore. I'm moved, I'm moved by her too. Uh, thanks to you. Really. <laughs> that last voice you heard in the clip was the Sun director, Florian Zeller, who was sitting next to Laura Dern when we did the interview. He won an Academy Award a couple of years ago for a movie called The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins. Good stuff. Check it out. 
Andrea Konstad is one of 60 women who accused disgraced comedian Bill Cosby of offenses ranging from groping to sexual assault to rape dating back to the 1960s. Her testimony that Cosby gave her wine and pills and then sexually assaulted her while she was unconscious at his home outside of Philadelphia in 2004 led to his initial aggravated assault conviction in 2018. Last year, she shared her story in a book called The Moment standing up to Bill Cosby, speaking up for women. And now she's the subject of a new docu-series, The Case Against Cosby. The Case Against Cosby reveals how one woman's unstoppable courage and search for justice help raise the voice of an entire generation of women seeking lasting change. The New York Daily Times calls her the true hero of hashtag MeToo, the first female courageous enough to stand up to all the power of Hollywood and demand the impossible and win the unbelievable and Andrea Konstad joins me now. Andrea, how are you? Very well, Richard. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining me. Um, we have to start, I think, at the beginning. You are uh, from Ontario originally. How did you cross paths with Bill Cosby initially? Well, actually, my career in basketball ultimately led me to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. where I was um, an executive. Um, a director of ap- operations, actually, for the Temple Women's basketball team in, in Philadelphia. And so it was kind of like the culmination of uh, a long basketball career um, that led me kind of onto the other side, onto the more business side of basketball. And that's how I ultimately landed there. And uh, Bill Cosby is uh, connected to Temple University. You would have met him uh, through there. What was your initial reaction to him? Um, My initial reaction was kind of like probably everybody's Mm -hmm. initial reaction is like, you know, uh, America's dad. Like, that's, you know, the very little that I knew about him. You know, I think I had seen, you know, some of his things growing up, like, a you know, a show or two here or there. But um, he was a pretty important, I came to find out anyway, that mm-hmm. he was a pretty important person on campus. Um, but he, he was America's dad, even in the midst of, you know, an auditorium, a basketball auditorium. Um, he was that kind of fun-loving, affable guy, you know, that was just literally taking in a basketball game, which is uh, where I happened to meet him. And you became friendly, although not romantically friendly, platonically friendly. Uh, he's older than your father. So what was your friendship with him like? What did, what did that entail? Well, it entailed sports. You know, mm-hmm. it was a relationship. It was a friendship built on sports, um, on temple sports, but ultimately all sports in general. I think he came to, you know, know me as a, um, you know, a person who cared about all the sports on on Temple's campus. Um, but, you know, ultimately it was, you know, just discussing my personal life with him. You know, like uh, what my career interests were, what I studied in college. Um, having played professional basketball uh, overseas, you know, that ultimately led to him asking me about sports broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the web that he spun me up in. Um, and that was the topic of conversation and his wanting to actually mentor me. And that was all very early on and became part of the grooming process. 
And there's very definitely a power dynamic happening here. You've got America's Dad, uh, formerly the star of one of the most popular shows, maybe ever, as a sitcom, The Cosby Show, and a guy with a legendary career. So there's there's a, a definite power imbalance here. Did you, I mean, you, you must have felt that to a certain extent, but when did you really become aware of that? Um, I really became aware of it. You know, I never... That's a really good question. I mean, I think there was a couple of instances when, um, you know, when I became aware of it, I, I never was intimidated by him, although mm-hmm. he was, again, like a pretty important per- person on campus. Yes. I was never intimidated by him. You know, I had, you know, formed many friendships with people who, you know, who were important people, even uh, celebrity-like people, athletes that I knew my whole career. Um, And so, you know, he was just another person. I never really gave him any fair treatment in my mind, or I didn't feel intimidated. You're listening to Andrea Constand on The Richard Krause Show, a new documentary, The Case Against Cosby, based on her memoir, The Moment, Standing Up to Bill Cosby, Speaking Up for Women, is now available on the free streaming service, CBC Gem. I think as, as I look back, you know, on one occasion specifically, you know, very early on, um, early to mid-knowing him, mm-hmm. uh, he made a pass at me. And um, I document that in my book. I talk about it. I talk about my feelings about what that felt like to have a person of, you know, a person like Bill Cosby actually make a pass at me. You know, um, I started to really feel like that imbalance, I think, specifically because it was like not something that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did feel like, is this, you know, what is, you know, does this person have an ulterior motive or different intentions? And so I think it, it stood out there. But, you know, um, I never had a reason to feel particularly threatened by him. Right. So that power imbalance didn't. In my mind, it was never really, um, you know, huge. We have heard about the assault. We're not going to detail that here uh, because the documentary uh, does that. You've done it in your book. You've talked about it a great deal publicly. Um, But I did find it interesting that uh, when you were studying to be a massage therapist, like your father, and it's got a focus when you're a massage therapist, there's a focus on trust, trust and boundaries and on the line between helping touch and sexual contact. And that triggered this revisitation of the Cosby incident. And I, there's, it's amazing to have one aspect of your life when perhaps you felt as though you had moved on to have all these things come really uh, seeping back into your life. Yeah, you know, flooding back in, Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I mean, even just kind of talking about that with you now, it's just, you know, it kind of just brings to mind, I think, things that, you know, when, when, when traumatic things do happen to us, you know, sometimes it's even years later that we're triggered by um, certain memories that, that might come up. And, um, you know, that was a, a particular instance for me that, you know, led to having a lot of bad dreams and nightmares mm-hmm. and, and actual, you know, problems with my uh, attention in class, at school, you know, constantly having these, these thoughts and these things that would trigger in both of 
my conscious and my subconscious pretty much. Um, and, you know, I really tried, I think, to probably bury it a little bit longer, but it wasn't, you know, not long after that where I actually did have a really, really bad dream. And um, I ended up, you know, um, disclosing to my mother what actually happened. And so I think this was kind of a natural progression of a trauma that kind of creeps into your mind through an experience you're living, and that specifically was, for me, a therapeutic relationships course at Massage Therapy School that focused on consent, you know, that focused on trust. And I think when things like that happen to you, I think you can, you just have problems trusting you have problems, you know, believing that there's good people out Mm -hmm. there when something like that can happen to you. And so, you know, for me, that was, that was kind of like my process, but it ultimately led to my journey for healing um, and to be able to take on a healing path by actually disclosing and telling my mother and actually coming out of the silence. You know, that was crucial, was just not to have a secret anymore so I could start to heal. You must have spent a fair amount of time uh, thinking about your initial uh, testimony. You knew that you were going to have to confront intense scrutiny. Um, How do you cope with that? How do you steel yourself for that? Well, I think I use a lot of just, you know, uh, for me, more like... um, spiritual, kind of like faith-based, you know, um, practices, you know, like meditation and, you know, yoga. So I kind of went into that, that, that really difficult part of my life, those trials, um, you know, to just be as prepared as possible, you know, in my mind and in my body physically and, and also just spiritually. So that was, that was my approach was really to just, you know, um, go in there and tell the truth, which it's it's not difficult to do. That's the easy mm-hmm. part to do. But I think, um, you know, having been through that, it was very high profile, and there was just, you know, a whole machine that was against me, and as well as the justice system. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, I really went into a justice system that was not, support, you know, set out to support me in any way. So I think I just really grounded myself with meditation and just tried to get through in just one moment at a time, you know, one breath at a time. Um, I have to say it, having been through so many athletic basketball games and preparations for right. those, um, you know, I think really my my athletic career really set me up to be able to withstand um, you know, being up on that stand. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was uh, steely. That's a good word. Yeah. Well, I, at that point, I'm guessing that that's where the real power and balance probably manifested itself by the time you got to court and there's mm-hmm. hundreds of people involved in the press and, and uh, it, 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 it must be just unbelievably difficult. Yeah, it really was. You know, I, I think... Um, in my mind, for me, it was just, you know, I, I didn't really have any expectation. I knew the job that I had to do, which was to just tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really was a, um, 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 you know, a total imbalance in that this is a very wealthy, powerful, uh, famous person. And it's literally, you know, what one of my friends said, David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it was, it, um, uh, that's, that's the way it, it um, felt. It, it, really, it really felt that way, even in the justice system, too. I never expected to get any convictions at all, and I, I think the prosecutors were really hopeful just doing the right thing. But, yeah, we, you know, we were very lucky. How did you feel uh, when you learned that Cosby's conviction had been overturned? Um, you know, I was really disappointed. Um, you know, and I've since found out other other information that, you know, is is that I, that we that is detailed in the documentary mm-hmm. in the case against Cosby. Um, but I was really disappointed for the message that it would send to people who were looking to get justice against people that had perpetrated crimes against them. And for that, I was I was really disappointed um, for the message that people might say, well, you know, if if Bill Cosby got out of jail and Andrea went through all that. Why would I, mm-hmm. you know, why would I tell anybody? Uh, but but I, I really do believe that with all the consciousness and awareness and everything that's transpired over the past four or five years, that people would feel that it's important to get your voice back, you know, to be able to not stay silent anymore. And there are so many resources and so many supports out there there um, for people to be able to come forward and feel the, the, the cur- have the courage and the strength to do so. But yeah, it was really disappointed, uh, disappointing. I, I know many of uh, the Cosby women um, were, were just flabbergasted, mm-hmm. absolutely flabbergasted. You're listening to Andrea Constand on The Richard Krause Show, a new documentary, The Case Against Cosby, based on her memoir, The Moment, Standing Up to Bill Cosby, Speaking Up for Women, is available now on the free streaming service, CBC Gem. Were you comforted in any way that uh, you became part of a community? Now, it's a community that nobody wants to be a part of, um, but that there were other people out there that would share your story and you could finally talk to them and, and, and speak with someone whose experience echoed your own. Yeah, um, you know, that's a really good point. It's, it's, it's important to have a sense of community. And that was what I found in all of the other women. You know, in the beginning, you think you're the only person, you Mm -hmm. know. When I came forward, I came to find out there were others, but I thought I was alone. If you ask the other 60 women, they thought they were alone, too. And so it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's mind-blowing how you just think that it's me against that wealthy, famous person, and who's going to believe me? Mm-hmm. And so I think having, you know, got to form friendships and relationships, many of which, you know, five of which there's, there's four other Cosby women in the documentary that we, we, we explore our healing path together and what that looks like in the different paths that we've all taken, but ultimately, you know, we have this this bond, um, a trauma bond, essentially, Mm -hmm. uh, because of what we've been through. Um, But we need a community to heal, and I think that's across the board. I think healing doesn't happen alone, and it's not just with sexual assault victims. It's across the board in every society and every culture. We have to do it together. And so I think knowing we're not alone makes it that much easier. In an interview that I read with you, uh, you have talked about being uh, drained, being emotionally occupied, but more recently you say you found peace. Uh, Does that hold true to today? Yes, it does. You know, it's um, it's a journey. It's, um, you you know, I think... 
having been through all that and it can just consume so many years of mm-hmm. my life, I, I think, you know, I can definitely say I'm on the other end of that. But it's thanks to, you know, it, it takes a village. It's thanks to so many people that I've been able to actually get to the other side. And so, you know, we all have dark days. We all have moments where uh, we have challenges and things that are difficult for us. But it's just you know, it's nice to know there's support and there's resources out there. And I've been really lucky to have that. So no regrets whatsoever about coming forward. Uh, I suppose you wouldn't be able to be in the same place in your life had you not come forward. Yeah, there's no regrets. I think, you know, I talk a lot, uh, you know, I talk a lot about this to people that we support through the foundation, Hope, Healing and Transformation that I started. You know, I, I think... Getting through things is really difficult, especially when it's traumatic. And even talking about traumatic things, it's it's difficult and painful. But the only way to actually get through something and get to the other side, to the rainbow, is not to go around it. It's actually to go through it. But it feels like a storm when you're going through it. And so I think that, um, you know, having been through all that, um, I'm really lucky to be on the other side, and I'm, I just feel very fortunate and, and blessed, but no regrets. Edvia, that is the perfect way to uh, end this interview. Thank you so much uh, for being so open with us and spending some time with me tonight. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Andrea Constand on The Richard Krause Show. The new documentary, The Case Against Cosby, is now available for free streaming on CBC Gem. Every year, for the last 14 years, 21st Century Burlesque Magazine has compiled a list of the 50 most influential burlesque industry figures. The list is voted on by thousands of performers, venue operators, patrons of the arts, producers, and others in the industry, as well as fans and audience members. This year, an indigenous burlesque performer from Quebec named Lulu La Duchesse Derriere came in at number two, placing ahead of the likes of burlesque superstars Dita Von Tees, Gigi Holliday, and Cleopantha. Lulu joined me to talk about the worldwide honor and how she got started in the business. I love that you've been doing community theater uh, since you were five years old. So community theater from five until 18 years old. What did you love about being on stage in those days, doing those shows? Um, I think it's the first place um, I really was able to feel like myself. I was mm. a really hyperactive kid. Um, I grew up on a reserve in Ganawake, which is outside of Montreal, um, which is a really great community, mm-hmm. um, but it's very sports, uh, <laughs> sports heavy. So lacrosse, hockey, um, and um, there was a small theater company started by um, Kevin John Saylor and Frank McCarthy called the Turtle Island Theater Company. And it was really like a safe haven for all these really artistic kids, mm-hmm. and it was it was amazing. So I was the first person I was able to really find my voice um, and be kind of a little artsy weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> be a theater kid. So what kind of shows were you doing? Uh, I mean, we did everything. We did Sound of Music. I did... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, what is it, Mac and Mabel? Wow! Um, and then the the Gateway uh, show was Gypsy, which is about Gypsy Rose Lee. And I did that play when I was, I want to say, thirteen years old. And I played Electra, who for anyone who hasn't seen Gypsy, it is about burlesque. Yep. Uh, and I played a burlesque dancer at 13 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and it and it obviously struck a nerve with you. It stayed with you. 
Yes. Um, well, it would, it would be many years later. Um, after I turned 18, I started doing burlesque. And it was this was like in the MySpace heyday. So mm. somebody just sent me an event. And they're like, you should try this out. It's kind of like theater, but it's really individual. So you don't have to rehearse as much. And like you can just go and try it out. So I did my first show at a, a nightclub. And it was like an actual... My audition was an actual show, and uh, yeah, I was hooked. Great. <laughs> and let's let's define for people who perhaps don't know exactly what burlesque is. Let's define what burlesque is. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I I mean, there's like a very textbook definition, and then there's my definition. So okay. I will say this first and foremost: burlesque is a striptease. Mm-hmm. Um, I know after the movie came out with Christina Aguilera and Cher, there were people calling me to do, like, Bob Nixfuzz and right. <laughs> stuff. And I was like, I don't do that kind of party. Um, so it is um, a little bit more adult. Um, but I often think of it as, like, uh, it's very theatrical striptease, uh, a storytelling art form. And I like to define burlesque as satirical sexual pageantry. Are you always looking at the next thing, a, a new kind of dance, a new sort of music, a new costume? It must be uh, a, a lot to stay after you say, you know, a, a, a couple of decades of doing this. It, it must be a lot of work to stay at the top of this game. Well, I think for me as an like individual uh, performer, um, I like to, I always say I, I like to be afraid when I go on stage <laughs> a little bit. Yep. Um, I never want to be comfortable when I perform. You're listening to burlesque performer Lulu La Duchess Derriere on The Richard Krause Show. So I try to differentiate my acts. Um, so it's fresh for the audience, but also for me. Um, I'll do different types of performance. Like um, I have an act where I'm a spider. So I have uh, I learned how to do aerial straps and I trained for a year with wow. artists. Yeah, um, I have an act um, that like incorporates a pole, aerial pole. Uh, so I, I try to use like different apparatuses, different genres of music, different styles of costumes, um, and then like also different themes, right? So I do have acts that are really funny, um, some that are super sultry, like more fetishy, but um, I do have a lot of acts that are really political as well, um, and those are more like performance pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's been like... It's a lot of work. Uh, I'm not saying all of it has been good work. I'm sure if anyone's seen me like 20 years ago, they'd be like, oh, oh no. <laughs> so it is, uh, yeah, these things change over time. And I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to evolve as an artist and to have the support of my community, which has been really, really good. You say that when you started performing burlesque, and this is the quote, I didn't see myself on stage. And so since then, uh, you have found it uh, to be very important to mentor uh, young people uh, and to um, ensure that other young women who are out there perhaps seeing you see that there is a way forward for them should they choose to take it in this profession. Absolutely. Um, I think that just making it as an artist is difficult. Um, yeah. But then you add other factors in, like being uh, existing in a racialized body. If you are, um, you know, queer or you know, like um, any anything, like there's all different um, things that can create um, difficulties um, or blockage uh, blockages when you're trying to get booked on bigger stages. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I can only speak to my worldview and my experiences and. 
it's been really good to be able to kind of shift things around and shake things up because now I'm mentoring people that are just starting burlesque and mm. it's nice to see them not have to go through the same struggles and for there to be more diversity on stage um, and have these really hard conversations with like not just like you know, producers and venues and festivals about, you know, things like that should be a no-brainer, like racial mm-hmm. uh, equality and body inclusivity. And, like, um, you know, it, it's a, it has to be a dialogue, and it's it's been ongoing for, you know, ever. <laughs> so it, it, I'm an optimist. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to see the changes and also to recognize that there's so much work that has to be done still. Um yeah, I, I think it's really, uh, it's an exciting time to be a performer, specifically in this art form. Uh, and, you know, I I didn't see a lot of Indigenous representation mm-hmm. um, when I started doing burlesque. And now there's like, uh, I did a, a conference uh, 2020 in Seattle uh, called BurleyCon, and it's it's a convention for burlesque artists to come and like learn the craft a little bit better mm-hmm. from experts in the field. And at the end, they did like a BIPOC gathering, and they like kind of um, segregated everybody uh, for a group photo, uh, depending on where you were from or, or what your background was. Right. And they called everybody for an Indigenous photo. And um, my heart was so full because I was in a room full of other Indigenous artists. Oh, wow. And like, yeah, I cried like a baby. It was, <laughs> it was so beautiful to be surrounded by all these uh, beautiful performers uh, from all over Turtle Islands uh, that were, you know, embracing this art form. Uh, because, yeah, uh, you know, 17 years ago, I didn't see that. Um, I didn't know any other Indigenous performers. And it was really, really nice to just be able to... Um, to see the change even in that in that one specific um, category of or not category but like grouping of people mm-hmm. it's, it's good uh, Lulu what a pleasure to speak to you thank you so much thank you for having me and congratulations yeah. on uh, this honor that's, that's amazing news I'm so glad we got to connect tonight thank you so much have a great night you too that was one of the best burlesque performers in the world Quebec's own Lulu La Duchess Derriere a big thanks to Lulu for joining me today also a big thanks to ultra marathon runner Johan Rock, Laura Dern who's filmed The Sun is in theaters now thanks to Andrea Constand find the documentary The Case Against Cosby on the free streaming service CBC Gem, or you can check out the book it was based on, Andrea's memoir, The Moment, Standing Up to Bill Cosby, Speaking Up for Women, at fine bookstores everywhere. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>